Hello, welcome to another episode of the Woodstock Whispers podcast. I am George Zach, a camper from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, a camper counselor, program director from that at those times. And again, I am joined by fellow Brewfield, Coloradoer, fellow South Windsor Bobcat, and uh, Woodstock alum from the 60s and 70s, uh, Ken Langford, who has been wonderful in helping collect some great oral history of Woodstock, finding some amazing history, just going out and talking to people. So Ken, what have you brought us today for this next podcast? So in episode 14 of Woodstock Whispers, we uh, heard from Jim and Johnny Holcomb. Uh, Johnny is the daughter of Lewis Knox. Jim is the grandson of Lewis Knox. And this uh, next episode and the one following it will be the continuation of those interviews, which were conducted over a two-day period in Los Angeles. Um, last time we focused more on the era that was Johnny's era and yeah. Lewis Knox. This one, we'll talk a little bit about Lewis Knox, but then we're into the Fred Worth era of camp, where uh, both Jim and I were campers. And uh, this was, uh, he started in 1965 or 66, and he was done being a camper in 72. And I started in 1970 and I was done. Uh, and then I went into the Steve Taylor era. Um, and so we're going to try and focus more on Jim's direct experience, but also some of my experiences at Camp Woodstock. All right. So it's a bit of a, so if you have not listened to episode 14, go back and listen to that. Cause there's some incredible stories there from, from Johnny. Um, she, she was just a, an incredible person to listen to throughout that. And she does appear on this one a little bit. And but we're, we're we're transitioning through the eras here in this in this next one. It's more about campers from the '60s and '70s, yes. And uh, something I should mention is that it was recorded in two different environments, and there was sometimes a uh, blower, uh, you know, like a furnace kicking out of the background in Los Angeles. In Los Angeles, right? <laughs> so it yeah. got to like 70 degrees. Right? <laughs> That's right. It was freezing, <laughs> and so uh, you, you'll hear some changes in the background sound. But it's all uh, it was all done in two days and. Uh, I just edited it together so that it had some continuity of topic. All right, great, good. All right, so let's give it a listen. You know, I'm third generation. Uh -huh. My youngest son went back to be fourth generation. Now he didn't care about that, but my mother and I was important to us. And then my uh, my cousin Larry Tabor, um, his daughter, has worked all the way up to be a counselor until a couple of years ago. Says in an effort to make Camp Woodstock affordable to all families, costs starting in 1922 were seven dollars a week, <laughs> yeah. which was a lot of money then. Right. Yeah, during my time as a camper, it was about seventy dollars. Yeah. Camp wasn't full the first year he was up there. The first year that Lewis was there. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. There was very poor attendance. Uh, when Dad took over, and he went out to all the high schools with flyers and everything, he went on a promotion tour. Uh -huh. And he got them. But you had to work for him. Even the trading post, getting the postcards, getting the sweatshirts, you know, to him that was, that was important. Everything was important. Well, you talked about the postcards. Uh, there were many postcards that you can find on eBay and so forth. Oh, you can, yes. And these were all apparently from, a lot of them, from his era, right? Yes, I believe so. There are companies where you can buy the camp postcards. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, they're still there. Yep. 
So in a way, it was, well, maybe it was partly to encourage the kids to write home. Oh, yeah. But also just promotional. It was. But also, I remember the times as a camper, you had to write a letter and get into dinner. Oh, right. You know, and um, you had to do that. Do you you think that that persisted into Fred Worth? Maybe. Okay. Yeah. I remember, I think, writing something crazy with Rick Seidman to our parents because we had to get in. Whether we were Comanches or we were whatever else. Right, right. But yeah, that was part of the... Pro- Everything was a promotion. You know, you had the white Woodstock sweatshirts. You know, it wasn't that expensive. Like I said, when I was a camper, it cost $65, $70 for two weeks. Right. So word got around. I know my grandfather made a lot of flyers, like my mother said, to all the schools to get them out and around. In the winter, he ran highway programs, gymnastic programs, church programs. He was a minister at Westfield, down near Middletown, for many years. Mm-hmm. Gladys was a, a reporter for that area, his wife. People respected him, and he was a preacher. And he was when he was preaching, he was the fire and brimstone type. And he would sing the, the, the hymnals. He had his favorites. Camp was his life. Do you feel as though the, the singing aspect of camp was really... Do you think that that was happening before Lewis Knox got there, or do you think that he was the inspiration for that? That I don't know. Uh, it says here, not the least of the uh, appreciated improvements was the first flush toilets in 1952. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. What do you remember about that? Yeah, hallelujah. didn't have the backhouse smell. They were all just, boy, they were in the booths, but you know what a backhouse smells like. Like an outhouse. It is. That's what it is. Yeah. That and the lanterns. He wanted uh, that out and the lanterns, so. So in comes the electricity and comes the plumbing. Yeah. Well, I don't know which came first, but anyway. It said somewhere that he created boys' camp. I don't know exactly what that means. Uh, It may have been he built the other side. Right. Yeah, he was involved in building the cabins 20 through 20, at least 24, 25. And was he there when 29 was also built? He may have been. But yeah, he was proud of that, building that area up. And was he like the primary carpenter on those? or No, I, well, that I, I don't think so. Uh-huh. I mean, he had his brothers. He had, it was during off-season. Um, I don't know about that. I remember he was proud of putting the basketball court up there where it was. Um, but yeah, I don't know if he built it. I'm sure he was responsible. Probably raising the money, raising the funds doing that type of stuff. Do you remember, Johnny, what he did in terms of fundraising? Like, how he how he managed that? No, the letters went out, and all I know is we got them into envelopes or, and sealed, but he was persistent and starting yes. early in the year and He had his donors, money. never knew who they were, but he knew who to tap. And, you know, yeah. He had a great reputation for that, so... Like with Fox, I'm sure, with everybody else. Yeah, he uh, he knew the he knew how to get scholarships for poor boys to go to camp. Everybody went to camp. He always had certain people he could tap. Do you have a sense of how uh, the the Christian aspect of the camp evolved over the years? It sounds like it was very strong when he was there. Yeah, it was YMCA, Young Men's yes. Christian Association. Yeah. Sunday mornings after breakfast, the counselors would go down and they'd get the hymnals out of the Poptinus room 
which was a chapel room at that time, uh, in honor of Pop Tina's. The Comanches and the older boys and the counselors would drag them down to the chapel through the silent trail. The old pump organ would go there too. My grandfather, I don't know if he wore a robe or not, but he would be there preaching. I don't think he did. But he would have a sermon, you know, a story. Either it was my grandmother, Gladys, that might be playing the organ or somebody else. I, I do not remember ever having an organ in chapel. There was a platform off to the side. Right. Wooden platform. Beautiful scenery going out to the lake. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked a little bit about Mr. Fox coming in and talking about stories, too. He knew my grandfather. We would suffer through singing through a couple of hymns. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, oh, this was a co- collection plate would go around. Believe it or not, you would get your envelope. And kids would come in, and they would put their money in a yellow envelope. And it always had to be money, currency. You would never have coupons or anything like that. His theory was kids had to learn how to use money. Mm-hmm. And it was a CIT or, or the office staff that would always... But there was a collection that would go around every Sunday. I remember my counselor one time, I only had a $10 bill. And I wasn't going to put that in the thing. Uh-huh. So they brought the plate over and he gave me, took my $10 bill. He took $9 out and put the $10 in. <laughs> so he made change for he you? He made change for me. And everybody <laughs> looked at me like, you know, are we stupid? No, they didn't think so. But it was cute. I remember that. Do you, know, do you know what they did with the funds once they collected it? Did they yeah. donate it to a church or did, was it to camp? I have no idea. That's so interesting. I don't know. But yeah, there was collection. Plans. I don't remember that. I do not remember. No, that would be during my grandfather's time. And he would preach and also other counselors would read scripture or read whatever. And, and there was singing. It seemed to change after he left. Um, and of course, the times were changing. And, well, they uh, didn't have ministers as directors. So there was a shift, and the world was changing, and you had all different kind of denominations of different religion camps. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I could see the shift through the Fred Worth years. They tried to keep chapel up, but it was different. Again, there was no minister or there was nobody to you know, do that. Um, there, but also there was a shift. There was a shift in staff. You know, each time a new camp director came in, there was a shift when my grandfather was there. A shift when Fred Worth came in. And then when uh, Steve Taylor came in, there was a shift of staff also. Mm-hmm. You know, um, And staff also got older and didn't come to camp. They got off to college. They went off to get married. So there's always these shifts happening. Um, he stayed in touch with Fred Worth, and he would guide him a little bit from what I heard afterwards and that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. He'd come down and visit camp every once in a while. But, um, yeah, religion seemed to not be as, as involved as it was. Now, you were a camper there while he was still the camp director, right? Yes. What was that experience like? Because you were the grandson of the camp director. Was it harder for you or easier no, for you? No, not or? really. Um, let's see, I started when, 65? No, I started, what, 66? As he a camper. was told that he was special to me and his father, yeah. and that's all. Stay away from his grandparents. I mean, I remember, you know, my grandmother would wave and, you know. Every yeah, time she I, had a fit. She says, I can't even give him a candy bar. He goes by me and he right. does this to wave to me and that's all. For the most part, no. I, I said, I, he was told that. <laughs> no, it was a good relationship. I mean, but he was running around all that time and busy. And, mm-hmm. no, I had my, my activities and everything like that. I'm sure he kept an eye on me, but I had good counselors. I had great experiences. I chuckled. It was back in... I've got the uh, 
still the seal of swimming across the lake. I think I did it in 67. And I had to chuckle because I was, uh, yeah, in 67. I was still young. And I'd pass fish, flying fish. I'd done all that. But I wanted to swim across the lake. And I was still small. And I kind of remember there was a little discussion. And Scott Pasako was my lifeguard. And um, I kind of thought, gee, he was probably told, don't let the camp director's grandson, whatever you do, drown going over across the lake. (laughs) (laughs) But for the most part, no, I didn't really. I was too busy. Uh, Same with my cousins. Uh, We all went. And, you know, Grandpa was up there in front, and he'd do the, you know, the prayer in the morning before the meals and sing the doxology and, you know, at night. But uh, the staff ran the programs at night. I probably didn't see him. Um, but I was busy around camp. But like I said, he probably kept an eye on us. Uh-huh. And just, the counselors probably knew who we were. Just so you know. <laughs> yeah, but on the other hand, no, I didn't really, you know, see him. By the time you got there, was the chapel already built? Oh, yeah. On the other side? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. The chapel was there. It had been there a while. Yeah, so I became a son of Woodstock back in 69. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Now, the sons and daughters of Woodstock, of course, I was a kid who, you know, dreamed of being chosen as a son of Woodstock. And as you know, from having been my counselor, I was not going to be any son of Woodstock. <laughs> I think by that time, it kind of mellowed out. So that, that didn't stop till the 80s, I don't think. Oh, okay. There's a funny story about that uh, um I brought a friend of mine from South Windsor to Woodstock in the summer of 73. He only went for one season, mm-hmm. probably even one session. Mm-hmm. And he was made a son of Woodstock. And, he, <laughs> sa- and he says that I was really mad at him because I never got it. And I was like, I've been here for years. And <laughs> I never got it either, son, uh, daughter of Woodstock. No, but you didn't were, have it then. Apparently they started it in 1947 is what wow. it says. I don't remember ever having it while I was a camper there. By the time I was becoming an LIT. The sons and daughters of Woodstock used to be picked by the other sons and daughters. But finally it changed out to counselors were then making the pick because they thought favoritism or whatever. That's It kind of went after that. What do you remember about the the actual ritual of the sons and daughters of Woodstock? What they actually did to initiate you? Do you remember that at all? I don't know during my grandfather's time. I remember during my time they used to dress up as Indians. Yes. And you get in a reach cloth and stuff like that boys girls and they'd have long poles and they'd be doing an Indian dance he clapped the poles together and somebody would in and out in and out do that type of stuff so that was like on the last night campfire and you were inducted your name was called up and that type of stuff and then you'd meet everybody and then the next year you know you'd meet once or twice and do that type of stuff what I was remembering was that there was some feather you had to like pick up with your teeth or oh, something. Oh yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, they put the feather down there, and they didn't have you try and pick it up, and they would push and shove you and all that type of stuff. Yeah, that was pretty funny. Um, and you know they would stand there like an Indian, go ugh, and give them a push. It was all fun. They give you like a little nudge with their leg, you know. Yeah, you <laughs> fall flat on your face. A little subtle stuff. nudge. And you couldn't put your knees down or something like that. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, they don't do Sons and Daughters of Woodstock anymore. I don't think so. They have, that has stopped. It says the tradition ended to avoid the deep disappointment of so many hopeful but left out campers, of which I was one. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess so I was. That's where they took it away from just the Sons and Daughters voting for it. Yeah. And Sons and Daughters were upset. And it kind of went downhill after that. Yeah. It makes sense. It's, it's playing favorites. You, know. Where you weren't a son of Woodstock, yeah. were you? Yeah, he's got the certificate. I I haven't seen it, so I haven't looked at it. 
I started out cabin 17, 65. My best buddy, Tim Taylor, gotta say his name, from East Heartland. Uh, my mother and his mother were great friends. And you're still friends with Tim? Oh yeah, we'll, I'll see Tim. He and I spent a lot of years as campers, and he went through CIT. And he may have been a junior counselor, I don't remember. Um, he stopped. Do you remember who your counselors were? I think we talked about I those. I remember things. some. Um, I think my counselor name was Manny something. I don't remember the last name. The second year, my counselor, my cabin was 16. The second year he was a camper, I went over to camp to bring him home. He says, uh, Grandpa says there's spaces. Yeah, I want to stay. Oh. So I had to go to my father and say, uh, Jim wants to stay. Is there room? Yeah. Hmm. Okay. I'm going to take him off campus for a while. We've got to go north and find a laundromat. <laughs> He's gone through two weeks of clothes and he doesn't have a clean thing left. And I'll take him to lunch and then I'll, bring, I'll be back. Okay. I, I went home and his father says, where's Jim? <laughs> he stayed at camp. First year in 17, it was two weeks. And after that, it was always a month. Mm-hmm. So, And from then, I spread out. I mean, I remember when I was older, I mean, Gabriel Goldmass was mine for two years. Barry Walsh, when I was over on the other side. Frank um, Steiniger, Steiniger um, was one of mine. Um, yeah, so those were... I had, and then I had somebody from Sweden, I believe, one year, uh, when I got down into cabin seven. You got to remember, boys camp. You know, I was I was a cadet. It was cadet juniors seniors. Yeah, tell me about that. And um, I started out as a cadet, and uh, you had your CIT, so it was all boys camp. So the 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 kids who were called cadets were essentially the equivalent of Sioux. Of Sioux, correct. So it was younger kids were cadet, juniors were what you know as Cherokee, and seniors was known as Comanches. And uh, yeah, I went all the way through, I think until I was a junior. Then it switched over to because we went co-ed. And I don't remember when the switch was from junior to. I think it's maybe when we went co-ed. I'm not sure. Which I think is '69, which is when Fred yeah. Worth started. Right, correct. So whose idea was it to bring in the Indian names and change it from that? <laughs> I can't tell you that. I don't Nothing know. about that. No, never thought mm-hmm. about that. I can't, but I think you know it's probably that period of time in the transition because my grandfather was old school. Uh, he didn't change much, but uh, yeah, it might have been during that period of time. The first thing in the morning, we'd all line up around the flagpole, and it was essentially an inventory of all the kids in well, the, all the was, cabins. Yeah, it was a cabin check. Yeah, cabin you check. did it. You did it. Uh, you did it morning, lunch, and dinner. Right. Counselors would say all here, or if their kid was in infirmary, they would report that. Program director would sort of keep count. I mean, everybody lined up around the big old white flagpole. Flag went up in the morning, came down at night. And there, and it was considered to be quite a privilege to be the people who took the flag down and folded oh, yeah. it. Put it up in the morning, take it down. And did we say the Pledge of Allegiance every morning? Maybe. I can't remember You don't that. remember that, huh? I don't remember that. I don't remember it necessarily either, but uh, we may have. We may have. But yeah, it was a whole camp and a kind of a rectangle going all the way down the hill around. You know, Sue were closer up. The younger kids were closer up near the dining room sometimes. And, you know, everybody lined up. Counselors behind the camp, campers lined up in the cabin. 
had breakfast, then you head down for cabin cleanup, then you had period one, period two, then you had general swim, then you had lunch, um, rest hour, unit hour, free time, general swim. Well, you can play sports. Well, yeah. that was the thing about camp at that time is that there was a lot of freedom, I think, for kids to run around and sure. just kind of be kids, you know? That's what I like when I said I was a camper. You only had two class periods in the morning. You don't want to be so regimented. Regimented. Yes, thank you. Uh, that you, that's too much like school or sometime. You want the freedom. You know, the unit porches, they were made with big porches, so when it rained, you had activities in the unit on the unit porch. And then um, you'd have dinner, and you had free time at night where you could go down boating, canoeing, sailing, swimming, or you, they'd put sports. You could play softball, soccer, or basketball. And then camp program. On Saturdays, you had, you know, whole camp activities, whether they were the Olympics or you know the Indian War relays that they used to run. Indian War relays was a whole camp on a Saturday because they had big events. You'd you form up teams, twenty kids, and you'd have positions all around camp, and you had a baton, colored batons, and the kids would run all around camp down to the new side, canoe here to there, swim to here to there, and they'd finish up at the lodge. So you start at the state beach, or maybe, and you run all the way up around the, the, the camp director's you know, cabin, down a ways around to the bridge, up to the dining hall, back down around. You know, each kid had a part, and there was like six. A relay teams. race. It was a big relay race. So we did things like that. Uh, capture the flag. Capture the flag. Where everyone got poison ivy. It was capture the poison ivy. Or it was uh, <laughs> race to the chapel. That's race to the did. chapel. Yeah, yeah. We always had the counselor hunts, and one year I scored big when I was a camper at like eight or nine in one spot. You know, talent shows were always great. But both they had talent shows, and then they had um, CIT shows. Yes, was it mm-hmm. was it just CITs or was it staff as well, like a staff show? They may have had a staff show too, but no, I remember they had the CIT shows or LIT shows. It was specific and they had talent. Yeah, Fred, he was he was a good camp director. He was part of the program. He'd do the skits. Oh, he used to do the, um, oh God, what was it? The person was behind him in the arms and he'd be the face. And the, I remember him doing Dr. Dr. Goody Health. Yeah, Dr. Goody yeah. Health or something. Yeah. Like and Fred was perfect at that. And I remember watching him doing that. You know, they would turn off the lights, bring them on. Just to re-describe Dr. Goody Health, it's a, a blanket held up and then... Uh, two blankets because you had the seam. And then you had about two or three, four people trying to hold up the blanket so you wouldn't see the person behind. Okay, you had to have a seam. And then um, the right. arms became the feet of the person who was the head. Right. And then someone else put their arms through to be the arms. The shirt. And mm-hmm. they couldn't see what was right. going on on the other side of the blanket. So they would just be... You know, brushing teeth and and uh, mm-hmm. putting on shaving cream and all this stuff, and it was just mm-hmm. funny because was, they couldn't do it well. <laughs> it was great, yeah. And the poor guy, Freddie, going whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's like make sure I get in. And he's moving his head and his mouth to try to get it where the toothbrush is going. And it was all comical. Um, they put the shampoo and they dunk the head and try and pour the bucket over the head. <laughs> and it was great. It was a great skip. Yeah, and I'm sure they did it for many years. Oh, do you remember the blanket game? So the, the one I remember is uh, they would have someone come out of the audience mm-hmm. and they would say, okay, you know, 
You're on. You're in the middle of the desert, and you need. You're super hot, and you need to take something mm-hmm. off. What are you going to take off? And they're underneath the blanket, mm-hmm. and uh, so they throw on a shoe, you know. And they go through this whole process of throwing different things out, mm-hmm. and uh, sooner or later they figured out that well, the thing they should have taken off was the blanket. Right. Right. <laughs> and then there was this one called the Little Sioux Camper, which I've described. Now they, we mm-hmm. had these milk bottles that were about. Oh, six inches high or so. Right. And they have what was called a cap seat closure. Right. And the cap seat closure was a little uh, cardboard circle that mm-hmm. fit into the very top of the milk bottle and was kept it closed. And we had these giant racks of these little milk bottles. Right. And so if you were drinking in bug juice, you had it in the metal pitcher. Mm-hmm. Whereas these, if you were drinking milk, you got your own individual little milk bottle. Right. And uh, there were two ways to open the cap seat closure. One way was to pull the cap up and take it out. And that was the way that was not messy. And then the other way was to push it in. And that's the way the milk would come squirting out. So when they did this skit called the Little Sioux Camper, Mm -hmm. they always stuck their thumb in the milk bottle and squirted the milk everywhere. So it was basically a a skit about being a naive young camper that was trying to navigate their way through camp and mm-hmm. making these faux pas and mistakes and so mm-hmm. forth. What about Let Me Kiss You? You remember that one? No, tell me that one. Uh, co-ed camp, a female and a male counselor would get up there. You know, <laughs> it's two of the cutest counselors. What's your name, little boy? My name is Lemmy. Lemmy what, little boy? Let me kiss you. And the boy will go, uh, what's your name, little girl? Uh, Ida. I do what little girl I don't want to. Right. But one of the verses was, I'll ask my mommy. Uh-huh. And finally, at the end, it would be the girl, would, he would ask. It was always him, was Lemmy. Let me kiss you. And the girl would finally say, Ollie. And the second part was, Ollie Wright. Uh-huh. So it was cute. Um, always the cute couple counselors. And there was, uh, there's a hole in my bucket, dear Liza, I think Liza it was. Liza dear Liza, dear Liza. And then we had the movies. Oh, right. I'd yeah. forgotten about that. They did screenings. They did screenings. Now, you got to remember, um, in my era, in 69, it's when they walked on the moon. Right. And I remember, I believe I remember, that they brought in a television into the... Uh, program Lodge? Program Lodge, I believe. Um, also, the year Nixon resigned. I remember that. I still was a camper. That would have happened during fourth session. I, or I third, or fourth, yeah. third, third or fourth session. But I remember, I do believe, I think I remember watching it when he spoke, Nixon spoke. So there was a lot of things happening in the world that, you know, affected the camp. Um, Sunday mornings, you know, after breakfast, before chapel, they'd always take the black and white camp pictures, you know, upper camp, and or later on years down at the program lodge. Right. I've got a lot of them. Like I said, in my years when I was a kid, they every Sunday the parents could come up and visit. It was after chapel, and you'd go up see your parents. They could have lunch. I remember my grandfather directing traffic in the dining hall where people could sit, uh, that type of stuff. And, uh, you know, the, kid, the cooks would put on a good meal. Couldn't tell you what the meals were. I was too young. But they would pack the dining hall, parents and kids. And on Sundays there'd be the ice cream. You would know it as the unit porch that used to be near the lake. Near, well, it used to be cabin one, cabin one here, and cabin two or three over here. Okay. Boathouse. There was a unit porch. They, that's where they had the ice cream. Now that didn't happen in the no. '70s, right? With no. the Fred Worth. No, it stopped, or it stopped soon afterwards. Um, you know, there was always a boat show in the morning. You know, parade. 
that type of stuff for the parents and all. And they would visit the kids. And then they'd filter out in the afternoon. They had this area called the Upper Athletic Field, which has been used or not used in various times, but I remember being up there. It was heavily used during the uh, years that I was a camper. Um, Saturdays we had big sporting events up there, I remember that. Um, you had um, land sports, it was one of the two classes in the morning. And you'd play soccer up there or that type of stuff. It was, it was mowed, really used. Because they had a, a baseball field down by the boys' camp. It was like the field near the waterfront. Yeah, my grandfather, had. and then put that in, you know, when they laid that all out. Um, I remember Han Phelps one time, we were trying to put the archery range off of that, and we were trying to dig for posts. And I had to go back to my grandfather and say, it's pure rock. And sure enough, when they made that soccer field, all the boulders and everything went off into there. But yeah, they had a baseball field there, too. <laughs> It was Grandpa's car one time that rolled down from the camp director's cabin and hit the backstop, put a big dent in it. If it hadn't hit the backstop, that car probably would have gone all the way down the waterfront. Wow. Talk about the upper athletic field. We used to do Olympics when I was a kid, and you'd sign up for all the different running and stuff. And I remember they used to have an obstacle course, and we had the old green benches from the dining hall, and they would bring them up and they'd make, you'd have to go under, you'd have to go over, and all that type of stuff. And you'd run down around the hill, down near the dining hall, and back up, and all the obstacles courses. It was really, it was really interesting, really great. You played Zellball instead of Tetherball? You knew what that was. Mm -mm. You know what Tetherball is? Yeah. Okay, well think of, not the Tetherball, but a tennis ball tied to that. And you had wooden paddles, uh, smaller than pickle paddles or whatever it's called. Pickle ball. But they were like rectangular, they were red and you had a handle. And you had a rope on the end that you put around the wrist okay. so you wouldn't throw the paddle or if you let go, because kids you know. And um, you'd be out there trying to hit a tennis ball, which wasn't easy. Or you're trying to flip the rope. Um, and of course when two kids went for the same time, you know, you come out and your fingers are smashed and you're either in tears or whatever. I mean, it was brutal. But at camp, you know, you had your winners, you had your losers, just like tennis. Same rules, it's just you were playing with a paddle. And um, you could hit that tennis ball hard and come flying around and, and you'd duck and, and uh, wrap it around the pole and, right. and all that type of stuff. But then they switched afterwards, late 60s, they switched to tennis ball. Yeah, I'm going to describe it a little bit first because I don't believe they still have tennis ball at camp. And uh, that surprised me when I was wow. there. But it's basically a pole with a rope on it. And uh, when it was Zell ball, it was a tennis ball. When it was tether ball, it was more like a volleyball, mm -hmm. essentially. Yellow, yellow. Uh, a volleyball on the end of a rope. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you would stand on opposite sides of the pole, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in a circular kind of a court. Right. And um, had the line across the divided half. That's right. And the idea was to try and wrap it around the pole in your direction. Right. And... Uh, I remember the, the king of the tetherball court was this guy called David Maxwell. Yeah, he, he was an African-American kid who was uh, up from, I guess, Manhattan. And, uh, boy, he just was so good. He, right. Hardly anyone could ever beat him. <laughs> but um, it was his claim to fame, and he was, he was very proud of it, I'm oh, pretty nice. sure. But I, was, I also had a huge respect for David Maxwell because right. he was such this great tetherball mm -hmm. player. But uh, I was so interested in it that my dad actually put a tetherball court in our backyard mm -hmm. so I could play in the off-season, you know, outside of camp. Yeah, I did it for my boys, too. Now, during my time, Mike Lowell was the tennis instructor. Okay. And he had one arm that was limp. 
So he couldn't play with that arm, but he was a great tennis pro. So how did he throw up the ball? He'd he throw would, it up with he'd one. He'd the ball, he'd hold his racket straight across, horizontal, bounce the ball, put it up there, flip it up, and then he'd serve it. Wow. I got tagged once in the back with one of his serves. It was like, oh, my God. But Mike Lowe was a fantastic person. I only remember him because I was a camper. Seemed like huge. He was tall. Great personality. Um, I believe he was a program director. Huh. There's some mention in here about the building of the tennis courts. That was uh, built when Lewis was the camp director. Do you remember anything about that? Probably don't remember it being built. I remember being the, the chicken wire being rusted by the time I got there. Uh -huh. But uh, yeah, it was a tennis court, one tennis court. and Yeah, how they got in there, how they tarred it and all that. It was uh -huh. pretty grown up by the time I got there. In my era, you went up to the craft barn and they had the, the not the chicken wire, but the wiring on the side. And you put your lanyards up there and you made your lanyards. Or you had, oh, the tiles. I don't know if you ever, the little tiles where you made hot plates. Okay. Those were special things. In um, a lanyard, you were good if you made a box Y, but if you could make a tornado that had the lanyard all the way around your head. Yeah. Uh, I almost killed my cousin once in cabin 16. I was making a, a Y or a tornado and I was in the top bunk. He was in the lower and got a pair of scissors and cut my gimp. My oh. lanyard. I almost killed him. Just to be mean, huh? He, holding it up and saying, gee, look what I did. Just um, to be mean. Yeah. I also remember we all had foot lockers. You remember that? The the big... Oh, yeah. I actually still have one. You have a... It's it's storing stuff up in the attic. But it was like it's a thing. A trunk. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Everybody had them. And the, uh, the bunks were high enough. You could slide it under. Uh, everybody had one. Um, remember the foreign staff when I was a counselor... The first two weeks, they are always amazed how much campers would bring in the camp. You had your foot locker, pillow, sleeping bag, or blankets. And uh, your laundry bag would tie up against the, <laughs> the, the bunk. And either you hopefully got an upper bunk or a lower bunk. I, I have this uh, memory of the toothbrushing troughs. Are they still there? That I don't know. Um, I went back about, well, actually, I was back there last March, but I don't remember. I remember in my time they were there, um, and they were probably old and rickety back then. Uh-huh. And, um, yeah, you use those, brush your teeth at night and morning, get washed up, that type of stuff. I think we even took our drinking water out of there. Like you did. There was a spigot on the end, probably. Right, right, right. You know. And then they made the showers. The showers were up by the bathrooms near the program lodge. And when I went last year, I looked at camp, and they look a lot better now than what they did back then. Every two or three days, they had a shower schedule. And no matter if you went swimming for general swim or whatever, it was either doing unit hour or whatever, you'd get a shower. And to this day, I still shower the same way, which is get wet, showers off. Soap up, yeah. showers on. <laughs> you know? Five minute showers. <laughs> they just had you regimented in the way you did it. Yeah, I remember the uh, you know the CIT lodge. That was a great place. That was a nice lodge, looking over the lake. Yeah, down there. Yeah, um, I had they that about one the time. Skipper's post. No, was, tell me about the Skipper's post. Skipper post was that little white building down on the waterfront. Okay. Main waterfront. If you looked at the waterfront, it was down on the right. That's where the waterfront director always used to. It was pretty ratted out for a long time. It might still be there. I don't know, but that's where the uh, waterfront director stayed. There for many years, even had the sign hanging off when I was a camper, Skipper's Post. Funny, I don't remember that. Like I said, the Nature Lodge was there. That was torn down many, many years ago. 
the old infirmary, like where my aunt was a nurse. And that's where the program director during Steve Taylor's time lived, Frank Mochak and his family. Oh, yeah, I was going to ask you about Ma Parkman and and some of the other nurses. She was a nurse. Yeah. And I remember her there, Ma Parkman, towards my years, I guess, in 76, 77. Yeah, when you were a counselor. Yeah. Um, And they they stayed for family camp. Um, Joan was a a nurse. I know by the first name. She was sweet. When I was first years, there were a couple of female nurses, dual teams. Um, Like I said, my, my grandfather had... Three daughters, Jimmy Marshman, she was a nurse there for a couple of years back in the early 60s. She met her husband, Bill Marshman, at camp. Okay. Or they were both from Sinsbury. So they got married and they worked camp. She was a nurse. He worked the waterfront, Uh Bill Marshman. He's still alive. Um, Until a couple of years ago, he's teaching swimming lessons at the Y up in um, San Jose. Yeah. Jimmy is in Austin, Texas. She just flew out to visit Sammy, her sister. Okay. You know, we always used to walk the path going up to the dining hall, across the bridge, across the little creek. And then Silent Trail was Silent Trail back when I was a kid. Right. Say more about Silent Trail. Silent I forgot Trail, about that. They had a, mentioned if it. you walked from the cabins, you either went straight up to the dining hall or you took a right. There was a big sign. There was a sign up on the thing. And the counselors made sure you were quiet going through it. Where else you get yelled at? <laughs> but you walk from there to the chapel. And then we walked past the chapel and I remember before the cabins were built. It was all a field and woods. Um, and we would hike out there for a day. You talked about Mr. Babbitt. I remember taking nature walks out past the chapel, out into those fields and hills. And you know, The Babbitts had the iguana. That thing you see, he put on his big glove and that thing, he would slap and slap the tail. And uh, I remember as a kid going on hikes with him. But he was something else. They had the Nature Lodge down by 18 and 19 up on the hill. Where did the Babbitts stay when they came to camp? I don't know if they stayed overnight. I used to remember that they were there for more than one day because they would be there sometimes for the meals and so forth. Where where, where did they live? They lived in Peterson, Massachusetts, which is maybe an hour, hour and a half north of camp. That I don't know. I mean, they did the shows at night. Um, I don't think they stayed at camp, but I could be wrong. All right. Used to be a couple of bedrooms in the old infirmary. We were t- talking about uh, traffic control in the dining hall, and Mr. Babbitt would sometimes be in the dining hall yelling out commands. Do you remember that? No, I don't remember that. So he was a, a deaf man. He wasn't Correct. mute, but he was deaf. Correct. So uh, there were two things he would always say in the dining hall. When kids were, came tearing into the dining hall to get to their tables, <laughs> mm-hmm. he would be there and he would go, slow down, yeah. slow down. I, I can remember that. <laughs> and it yeah. sounded like that. Right. And then uh, the other thing was then, I don't know if it was hand is up, mouth is shut. Do you remember that? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, so uh, they were trying to figure out how to quiet down all the right, kids. Right. And, and when they up. put up the hand, right. someone raised their hand, then everyone has to raise their hand, and then right. that's when you're supposed to quiet down. Yeah. And uh, if they weren't quieting down, Mr. Babbitt would say, be quiet, yeah. be quiet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, counselors are always on the end of the table to be able to look towards the center for the most part. And yeah, yeah. Oh, that's right. I never, I forgot about that. Hands would go up. You're quiet. The hand is up. The mouth right. is shut. That yeah. was the way it went. Yeah. You had the old picnic tables, the square ones with the benches all the way around. That's right. You had the leaders, uh, you know, the senior 
senior administration, the one or two tables up front. And I'm sure that's where the Babbitt's ate, you know, with the, uh, oh, the unit directors and the program directors and camp directors. Waterfront, and, probably. Yeah, I remember CITs would be the waiters or rushers, as we talked about it back then. They would serve, you know, that. And I guess it was an honor to be a CIT, to be a rusher or waiter at those type of tables. Now, you mentioned waiters. When did rushers come in? Was that the that same was, thing? Yeah, that was rushers later on. Waiters, rushers. Do you remember who called them rushers? And, no, I can't remember. It's probably during my time. Because I remember that they rang, they would ring the big bell, yep. and everyone would start yelling out, rushers, rushers, right. and then you'd have to go up and... Uh, yeah, you had to ring the bell. First bell was rushers, second one you go up. If you're in general swimming, you're a rusher, you would be in trouble. You'd be late. You have to go out and get changed. Do you remember what we drank at camp? Uh, bug juice. Bug juice. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> and it was essentially uh, Kool-Aid. I mean, probably was it Kool-Aid? Kool it probably was. It was probably Kool-Aid, but they called it bug juice. Yeah, and they bought it. You know, everything was government surplus. Uh, the big standard was the number 10 tin cans and government food. My grandfather, um, you know, they and I remember a couple of times when I was a counselor before camp started we would go down into Hartford with a camp van and load up food government surplus food and that's what they had in the, the dining halls so these were like these giant big, big multiple cans. gallon yeah, just big cans talk about the dining hall you know certain foods chicken a la king chicken and king and then the joke was meatballs you know, hamburgers, and then it was turned into meatballs, that type of stuff. Uh -huh. They had the old refrigerator out in back in the dining room. Which the I never kitchen. did see that. And you get to walk in on a hot, hot day and cool yourself. <laughs> um, Steve Taylor brought in new equipment into the, into the dining, into the kitchen one year, got donated. Uh, did go into the dining hall to get money. Yeah, how did you ever find out about that? Well, you, you just knew it. I never knew that. Well, see, again, it was my grandfather, you had to have money. Right. And you had the little yellow envelopes that after lunch, they passed them around. Right. And you had to take the coins and you hit the picnic table. Yep. And then, boom, it'd go down and the cracks were between the boards yes. and the dining hall. Yeah. That's where they put all the crumbs went down. Well, coins went down too. But when they're like snakes and spiders and other stuff? Little spiders, webbing. So, come on, you're a kid. You didn't care. <laughs> that's, that's snakes. So you, there was just enough for the dining hall you could crawl under certain spots. Hey, spiders yeah. were what happened to the night of the moon boat. Come yeah, on. They, <laughs> so it was a thing, you know, a joke. Kids, but you'd see kids under there every once in a while. Really? Because yeah. I never I never remember that. But you'd also hear somebody, some kids saying a few choice words when his quarter or his dime went down there. Uh-huh. Uh, the counselors would look at him. That's the way it goes. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, the counselor would go back later and get it. Yeah. <laughs> So tell me some story about Tom the Cook. Do you remember anything about him? He was there for a long time. Um, <laughs> did he work the uh, fraternities over at uh, UConn? I don't know. That's kind of what I heard, or where the cooks used to come from. He was really funny. He was a character. Uh, good cook. Again, my grandfather. Did he work during my grandfather's time? I'm not sure. This was 73, so this was definitely, this was Fred definitely Worth. afterwards. Fred Worth era. Um, I remember there was older cooks with my grandfather. When I went to visit him a long time before, I'd go in the back. I always made friend breakfast. with the cooks. Did you know Tom? Tom, yeah. What do you remember about him? <laughs> that he would cook my eggs just perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Kurt Sample, 
remember Kurt was little when we were on the sailboat. He became the cook at yeah. camp for a while. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he, I remember him, kitchen boy, and he became a cook. Who was the other cook that was with Kurt? There was there like there two. There was Ken, Ken, I don't remember, and some somebody else. And they had and they used to come out and sing a couple of songs. You remember? Yeah, that? they would, and they stayed down in like cabin twenty five or something like One that. One of them was uh, Dunderback's machine. Yeah, you remember that? That sounds familiar. Oh Dunderback, oh yeah. Dunderback, how could you be so mean? Yeah. Now all the neighbors' cats and dogs will never right. more be seen because right, they've right. all been ground to sausage meat in right. Dunderback's machine. Mm -hmm. And then they sang um, Hog Calling Time in Nebraska. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. We used to have all the national flags hanging in the dining hall. We used to have all the songs after. At every meal, we always sang grace in the form of a song. He sang the doxology. <laughs> or at least with my grandfather. It was always the doxology. Do you remember what what's the doxology? I don't know that. Oh, yeah, I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> Come on! <laughs> no, praise God for him who all we, whatever. But with Grandpa, it was, because he was a minister. He was an ordained congregationalist minister. And he made sure he said a prayer, or I remember him standing up, or we'd sing the doxology, then we'd sit down and be able to eat. I want to mention a couple of the songs that we sang as grace, because I remember quite a few of them. We sang the Johnny Appleseed song. Oh, yeah. Which I still sing sometimes if I'm an, uh, a guest of uh, a family that's Christian. Uh, I'll sing Grace, and they are just delighted with it. And most of them don't know the second verse. Right. You know, one. I wake up in the morning as happy as can be. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> We're not singing that, are we? All right, some of the other hymn songs we sang, or Grace songs, was uh, Allelu. So it was Allu, 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 yeah. hallelujah. I remember that. And then they would say, okay, the boys take this part, the girls take this right. part. Praise ye the Lord. That was one. Amen. It was just simple. Yeah, I remember amen, that. Amen, amen, yeah. amen, amen, right. amen. Sing it over. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. And then uh, in back of the bread, you remember that? I think it goes something like, in back of the bread is the flour, and back of the flour is the mill. In back of the mill is the something something and the Father's will. Okay. I can't remember what the line is. And then we sit down and be able to eat. You know, the waiters would, waiters or rushers as they were called later, would wait. Food was being, you know, held in the kitchen. And as soon as grace was over, the kids would start running. Well, not running, but they were. You know, heading for the kitchen. You go in the indoor, come out the outdoor. That's right. And uh, you have your, your meals for the day. From the very start, I remember a lot of singing, particularly in the dining hall. That's where mm -hmm. I think most of it. We did some in the program lodge, I'm sure, too. Right. Before a program started at night, they'd start singing. But a lot of it was in the dining hall after meals, especially lunch or dinner. I remember that. And you went through the different songs. Um, you know, Green Grow, Rushes, Hole, or whatever that was. Um, yeah. You know, um, I remember, do you remember the zoo song, We're Going to the Zoo? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, I sing that to my fifth graders and they think I'm nuts. <laughs> and then the Woodstock cheer, where Woodstockers born and Woodstockers bred. Right. And then at one point, some people, I don't remember exactly who, changed the next line to, and after meals, we're Woodstockers dead. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. You do remember that? <laughs> because I sang that one time to a group of Woodstockers, and they were like, oh, I hadn't heard that one. <laughs> right, right. No, it was, it was special. And, and while waiting for meals, you would sing the songs. And kids really got into it. Oh, yeah. They really did. I, I, I feel as though it had a huge impact on my life in terms of, like, 
keying me into music in a way that nothing right. had done before. And then you had, we talked about, you had the counselors who brought their guitars. Yeah. Um, Mike Lowe had a guitar, I remember. Becky Brown, we talked Becky about. Becky Brown had a guitar. Frank Mochak had a banjo, I believe. Uh, and then there was one year, one one person, I do not remember his name, he had the bass, a uh, big bass. I don't remember that, stand-up and, bass. Uh, stand-up bass, and that was one of the best years. Oh, yeah? Oh, they would they would always sing, if we are in the program lodge, you know, before it start or during it, um, stopping. You know, all the different uh, folklore songs. Folk songs of the day. Folk songs of the day. Probably like of Leaving the on the Jet Plane. Yeah, Leaving, um, like I said, Puff the Magic Dragon, Lemon Tree. I don't remember Lemon Tree at all. A hundred miles. If I had a hammer in Caroline. Sweet Caroline. Neil Diamond, that's right. Uh, And then some of the barges was a big one. Oh, yes. um, I love barges. We were co-ed, the girls and everything, the harmonized. That was fun. Barges, singing at night. So music was a big part. And And then, of course, you always had the camp hymn. We talked about that last night. Camping in the Pines of Woodstock. And that was the first on the left-hand side of the fireplace on the blackboard. And then, as my mother says, my grandfather wrote the second verse, which was on the right-hand side. Okay. How true that is, I'll take her for the word for it. Uh Um, I always remember learning the the first one first. And then all of a sudden, and it probably was up there, but for me as a cadet, it appeared and we had to learn the second verse, <laughs> you know, Camping in the Pines of Woodstock. Uh-huh. Beautiful song. Um, but it was taken after a hymn, I believe. Do we know what the original I hymn was? I don't know what it was. I could be wrong. Some people would know. I mean, right. you know, certain, uh, I'm sure that there are some people who would recognize it just as a hymn. Maybe. I could be wrong. But, yeah, and, of course, the camp hymn was always sung, you know, as you said, you did taps, you'd sing the camp hymn before then. Right. And that was, you know... And a few songs before that. I remember in a talent show once I played the camp hymn on, on the piano. Oh, you did? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Donuts. I don't know if they do as much as we used to in terms of singing and so forth. Because yeah. it was huge when we were there. I heard in later years when my son went to camp, they did a lot of cheers. They got away from the songs. Which I don't understand. Uh, to me, it was such an important part of camp for me. Right. We also had the cheers, which were specific to the, the Indian groups. To the units. And again, at this time in 1970, the Indian names were new. They were new. They, had, they were not very traditional at the camp. Correct, because when I went back there when I was a kid, it was cadet juniors and seniors. Right. Then the other big riff was yay, Ra Ra. You remember that? Would it go back and forth? No, no it was, uh, you'd say... Uh, Yay, rah, rah, what are you doing for lunch? Or, you know, like, oh, you know, oh. it was like, I guess, a way to get That's people's attention. Yeah. You know, so so they would just go back and forth. Like, it, you, you people would huddle mm-hmm. around the table and go, okay, what are we going to say? Okay. Mm-hmm. And then we go, yay, rah, rah, XXX, mm-hmm. whatever it was you said, okay. you know? Right. right. <laughs> and I also remember then when a guest came to the camp, we had this song, Hearty Welcome to You. You remember that? Hearty welcome to you. Maybe not, not really, but it was yeah. like it was like happy right. birthday, but it was like welcoming someone oh, to yeah, the camp. Oh yeah, and somebody would they'd have to stand up, right? That right. type of stuff. In the later years, they didn't have as many guests or that type of stuff. Remember the cookouts? I do. You had to get a stick, cook your cook your hot dog. You cooked your own hot dog. Cooks had the night off on Wednesday nights. Oh, was that what it was? Yep. It was always a cookout because of the cooks. But when I was younger, Tom the cook, they had uh, chicken barbecues. Right. You had the hot dogs and you had watermelon and uh, 
hot dog buns. Uh-huh. Lucky if you didn't burn your hot dog. Bananas, fruit, whatever. Um, yeah, I remember even when I was a little shaver, you had to go out and get a stick. Longer the stick, the better. And then afterwards, um, especially in my grandfather's time, the Mohawk unit leader's porch down near the waterfront had the two ice cream freezers. Oh. And everybody would line up, and my grandfather and some other people would be selling it. Always got toasted almond, toasted almond popsicles. Can't find them anymore. That was my favorite. Because what I remember as far as uh, ice cream and candy and treats and stuff was uh, basically part of the craft barn, right? It was, it was, uh, or there was the craft barn, the the two car garage, and then off of that was the trading post. The trading post. Yeah. That's right. You know, they go the cabin inspection every morning, and based on the inspection, you know, whoever got the highest for the day, they get dismissed first, get in line. You know, buy a soda, two candies, that type of stuff. And it was, again, you had all your coins and you learned to count it out and all that type of stuff. Then they had the big rule, if you dropped the candy wrapper and some kid picked it up, you owed them the candy. I don't know if you remember that. I don't remember that at all. I learned that when I was, before I was a camper, I went over to see my grandfather and went out, got a treat from my grandmother. You know, I got in line like everybody else after lunch. Took off the wrapper and it must have fallen to the ground. And the next thing I know, I had this big senior kid about ready to beat me up because I dropped the candy and he was old the candy bar. And I didn't know anything about the rule until Dick Prozo came and rescued me. <laughs> oh, no, no, this kid's not a camper. This kid's not a, you know, he doesn't know the rules. We'll take care of it. And I learned that rule after that. <laughs> you only dropped one candy wrapper. only dropped one candy bar wrapper. <laughs> but that was the rules back then. So, in listening to that, Ken, what, what, that, 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 that was incredible. In listening to that, what points stick out to you as, oh my gosh, when you heard that, you were like, I wasn't expecting to hear that, or that's an, an incredible nugget of Woodstock history that I had not really picked up on before. Well, it's no surprise to me that there was a change in the, the religious tenor of uh, Camp Woodstock. Of course, it's a YMCA camp, Young Men's Christian Association, and there were uh, pastors, basically, or, or ministers who were running the camp, uh, Poptinus and Lewis Knox, in the early days. And then as Fred Worth came in and Steve Taylor, uh, these were not religious men, and the times were also changing in terms of the late 60s. Things right. were becoming a little more liberal. Culturally. Yeah, it was a cultural change, a cultural shift. And so you got to hear the transition of that cultural shift in uh, over the over the course of that time period that Jim and I were there as campers. Great. Well, um, th- we will have more to come. Uh, when this episode, we are going to get this episode out before the 100th. We're leading up in the days and weeks to the, uh, gosh, we're just done what, two weeks or so here. Um, we're going to get out a few episodes here, that uh, uh, some information that uh, Ken has collected. So right after this, you'll have some other episodes coming. Um, so if you have some oral history and you want to get it out before the hundredth, please drop us a note. We'll see what we can do to record that. But even afterwards, this project will continue on as we just look to capture digitally all the oral history of the hundred years of Camp Woodstock. We'll also have links in the show notes to the hundredth. I think registration might be full at this point. I've heard there's like 400 people. I'm sure they'd love to see it, no matter whether it is or isn't. Right, right. (laughs) So again, uh, you've been listening to Woodstock Whispers podcast, and uh, we'll talk to you soon.